So this is my second conversation with Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, and we're talking about his new book, Healthy at Last, a plant based approach to preventing and reversing diabetes and other chronic illnesses. So that sounds like a title that you could have found in a lot of other plant based books. So what's different about this one? For one thing, Eric Adams is not a doctor or researcher or an activist. He is the Brooklyn borough president. If Brooklyn were its own city, it'd be the third largest city in the United States. And um, borough president Adams is also the right now the front runner for um, becoming mayor of New York, I think in 2021, which means he's a guy with serious political clout. And he has been using that clout for the last several years since he discovered he had diabetes and reversed it with a plant based diet with the help of many of the doctors that you and I know about. He hasn't just, you know, like told people about it and organized a couple of potlucks. He has really turned the borough of Brooklyn upside down in some ways to bring the message of plant based nutrition, specifically plant based healing to the community, to medical institutions, to schools. They're doing, you know, one of the largest scale meatless Mondays anywhere in the world. He's working with uh, with doctors um, to to introduce plant based medical protocols into uh, community medical centers. It's really it's really quite incredible the the impact that this can have, because Brooklyn, let's face it, is like the hippest city in the world. And whatever happens in Brooklyn eventually happens everywhere else as well. Uh, and the other thing is that's interesting about this book is that Borough President Adams is really talking directly to the African-American community and saying, you know, the foods that you love, the foods that I loved are actually slave foods. They are the, the leavings, the, the scraps and the African-American community in the United States engaged with great creativity in turning these into things that were palatable. And now it's sort of one of the last vestiges of slavery, this continued addiction to these soul foods that are causing such high rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, dementia, obesity uh, and various other afflictions that disproportionately affect the black community. All right, so let's get right to it. Without further ado, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Yes, thank you so much. Enjoy the last time being with you, and I enjoy being with you again and your listeners. Yeah, well, we got we got a book to talk about. You 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 wrote a book. It's called Healthy at Last. Um, so the first question is when I when I heard the title from Rachel. I thought, well, that sounds like the the crescendo of the I have a dream speech. And I'm wondering <laughs> if that was a uh, on purpose. <laughs> Actually, it's connected to a old ballad um, called At Last. It was a woman who sang about finding the love of her love, uh, love of her life at last, you know, and. Uh, you know, I found love internally uh, with myself of understanding how important it is to nurture and take care of yourself. And so it's like at last uh, waking up without the aches and pains, without the bloated feeling, the constipation, the headaches, the backaches. And just now waking up every day and just saying, wow, this is what life is really supposed to be about. Wow. Wow. And it's funny because you, you write in the book about 
your relationship with food and, and your family's relationship, it was this, it was some sort of version of self-love that drove you to eat all of the things that were not good for you. So true, so true. Because we, we have to unlearn what we learned so that we can really go down a pathway of learning. And when you look at particularly uh, my family and other families uh, coming from the southern part of the country or from uh, the Caribbean or South and Central America, uh, the roots that we've had with our food and our relationship with food has really been changed through, for the most part through colonialization. Uh, when the colonizers came in, they brought you know terrible eating habits. We moved from eating off the land uh, to just reading, eating the scraps uh, that were available to us. And even now, you look across the country, look at places like Hawaii, with all of the natural fruits and vegetables, one of the top foods that they eat is Spam. Mm. Uh, they was taught to eat Spam, and they put it in their traditional dishes uh, to cycle, up, cycle them off of just eating naturally from the their land, from their land. And that's why I say we need to change uh, what we thought was uh, good practices of displaying love to really know what those practices should be. Wow. Yep. Um, so w- one of the stories that really hit me, and it would have been like if it was a scene in a movie, it might have been a comedy, like a Tyler Perry comedy scene, but it was so touching and tragic to me was all the, at your Aunt Betty's funeral. And, and everybody waving the pillboxes. Could you just share, share that story? Yeah, it, it was actually, we went down uh, to, you know, to really uh, celebrate the life of my auntie. And when uh, everyone was sitting around because a mom forgot uh, her uh, diabetes medicine. And when uh, she says, you know, I forgot my diabetes medicine, and it was like, no problems. She asked, did anyone have any? And everyone had a version of it. Everyone had uh, some metformin, you know, different versions of her medicine. And they basically uh, shared the same drugs. So some came from Chicago, some came from Florida, some came from New York. But the common bond they had was not only that they had the same bloodline, but they had the same drug line. And, mm-hmm. and that was really a terrible situation to see uh, that, you know, we felt that it was normal to say, okay, you don't have to worry about if you, if you, if you forgot uh, your drugs or your medication. We all have it also. And I just sat there and they, just a state of sadness uh, settled over me. And even this weekend, I went to my sister's uh, wedding. And as I sat around the room and I watched all of my family members, uh, you know, just, you know, everyone had a cane, you know, a lot of my elders and a lot of the uh, young 40 and 50 years old were carrying uh, 100, 150 pounds more than they should have, all talking about surgeries, exchanging their stories of, of the medicine they're taking. So my mother's generation, and she's 86 now, shared their pills. And now we had a new generation of young people that was following the same pathway. So that story really resonated with me as much as others who have talked about, um, you know, watching their family members do the same. Mm. So um, what were you hoping to accomplish in writing the book? You know, you're a, you're a public figure. 
Um, there are tons of books out there. I get them in the mail all the time around you know, whole food, plant-based health. What were, what were you looking to bring to the conversation, the impact you were looking to have that you didn't see out there already? Well, you know, sometimes uh, there's this thing that um, Malcolm Gladwell, the writer, talks about in Tipping Point, uh, influence, influencers, how people who we look up to can have an impact and give us a moment of reflection or looking into areas that we might have ignored. And I wanted people to see that although, you know, I'm a former police officer, a former state senator, a former, bar, currently the borough president, that with all of those titles, with everything that I acquired in life, how fast I could have lost it all. Mm. And not by talking down to people, but speaking with them, understanding the frailty of the imperfection of my life. You know, because you tend to look at public figures and don't believe that they acknowledge their imperfection because in our biography or our resume, we don't have a failure section. We don't have a section that point out how many times we dropped the ball and how many times we made a mistake. I wanted this book to be an easy read to see that I am not this perfect guy. I'm this person that made some bad life choices and food choices that led to my illnesses. And you should never give up on yourself uh, there are some real ways you could take steps to correct, you know, some of the bad interactions that we had that we've had in life, and to see it through my eyes as being a public figure, exposing myself, and being very candid and open uh, to how I turned around my type two diabetes and how people can do the same in other chronic diseases. Mm. So one of the things I love about the book is you're speaking explicitly to the black community. You quote, you know, all these wonderful black doctors from my neighbor, Judy Brangman, to Milton Mills, to, uh, you know, and, and you're really saying, like, we have been sold a bill of goods. You, you know, you sort of talk about, um, you know, that this is a way to, this is the ultimate freedom from slavery. Like you still, like, I mean, the way you talk about it was so powerful that in a sense, slavery never ended because of the food choices and the, and the food opportunities in the black community. Well said. Uh, in the black community, there's this thing called the Willie Lynch letter. Uh, it was a gentleman named Willie Lynch who was teaching the slave masters um, how to embed the philosophies of slavery and keep communities divided and just really instill inside of the slaves um, how to have self-hate. I believe, and I point out in the book, that the real Willie Lynch letter is in our recipes, uh, mm -hmm. recipes that have been handed down um, from generation to generation, Every, everything from the chitlins, uh, the piggies, the pig feet, uh, the, uh, how, where did fried chicken come from? Why did it happen? Because it's important for people to know the origin of how they started to do, do something. Because we think sometimes uh, we just woke up and this was always part of our culture. And no, the book, I, was, I wanted to show people that is not true. And what is fascinating is that although we have made great strides as black and brown people and other uh, groups, we've made great strides. Uh, we've had an African-American president, um, leaders and CEOs of great institutions and corporations. But for the most part, our attachment to poisonous food has kept us on a plantation. 
and we are still enslaved to the food that we're eating. Because remember, remember, being shackled in place that's bad for you is not only a physical shackling, but it's an emotional shackling to something that's bad for you. And that's what the food we're eating. We are still enslaved to the fried, fatty, processed, greasy, over-sugary food. And it's real, the real emancipation is going to come when we tie, take ourselves away from that, uh, that enslavement. Mm. And, you know, just linguistically, I was so struck by the, what, what they call collards without pork. Right, they're called like motherless greens. Like who would who would want to eat that? <laughs> so so true. And you think about soul food. Uh, no one knows the real origin of when it started, but soul food takes even healthy food and do everything possible to make it unhealthy. You take yams and sweet potatoes, which are extremely healthy. Healthy. Then you pound on sugar and butter and, and milk and you turn it unhealthy. You take collards and, and, uh, and other uh, greens and vegetables and spinach and you start pouring on salt and fat fat and grease and oil. So even the thought of soul food, it says even when you take healthy food, you want to take that healthy food and make it as unhealthy as possible. And in the process, you say, you know what, right on. Now that food has soul. No, mm. that food is taking away your soul. Mm. Yeah. So what, one thing I found really fascinating, and so I'm a little bit late to the party, sort of reading books like anti-racism books, like Ibram Kendi, um, but coming to this, the whole debate about whenever there's a, a group of people that's getting a worse outcome than other people, there's always a tendency to blame the people within the group for not doing something right. You know, the, the men don't lift their pants up or the right, all that sort of thing. And for, from your perspective, like you're saying, like the, the black and brown people are having much worse health outcomes. And part of it is food choices, but also part of it is institutional racism. I think you're, you're one of the people with the biggest opportunity to work on both sides of that equation. That's so true. Uh, you know, for your read, for your listeners, uh, when I, I went into the police department after being beat bad by police officers as a 15-year-old child, and I joined the police department because civil rights activists asked me to go in. And I went in and started an organization called 100 Blacks and Law Enforcement Who Care. And we pushed for reform in policing to be a fair place where you can have safety and justice. And so because of that narrative, and because of the life I lived for 22 years in the department, people saw me as a person that stood up for equality and justice in all communities. And so now when I take that same voice, uh, that same drive and say, just as we wanted safety and justice together, I want to show you how uh, food is poisoning our communities. And the only body of people that, that is, is, that's actually benefiting from this is the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, you know, we fight to get drugs off our street corners, uh, yet uh, the real drug dealing uh, really lies in the three-piece pharmaceutical companies that they actually have our families hooked on drugs for the rest of their lives. I, could, I would have been hooked on metformin, on insulin, on high blood pressure, on statin. I would have been hooked on those drugs for the rest of my life. That was unbearable to me. And so my advocacy is really 
about how do we uh, empower people in a real way. And when you think of this, uh, often uh, how it, people look at this issue of healthy food as a white thing. When you start talking plant-based or veganism, uh, they say, wait a minute, what are you trying to be white? Is this a white thing? No, it was important as an African-American man to say, no, this is not a white thing. This is the right thing. And we need to look at what we eat and how it's impacting our bodies, our mothers, and how it's impacting Mother Earth. So could you talk a little bit about the things that are going on in Brooklyn that you've spearheaded and you've enabled around so not just writing a book telling the black community, hey, we've got to clean up our food act, but creating education, creating opportunities, creating um, access to healthy food so that it begins to normalize. Like there's really exciting things going on in New York, largely due to you. Can you talk about them? And we are extremely excited. Uh, I, every day I wake up knowing that uh, there are new barriers that we have to remove to allow people access to health. We're starting with our schools. Uh, we started a Meatless Monday initiative that has really taken off. It has grown from just our schools to our hospitals and some of our other uh, governmental agencies. I'm a big believer. What you cook at home, what you put on your grill in your backyard, you have a right to do but government should not be paying for our healthcare crises. Your tax dollars should not go into uh, feeding the healthcare crises. And so we have focused on our schools to do a Meatless Monday initiative. We have, we've also have been extremely successful what many people thought was impossible. We um, persuaded the city to stop purchasing processed meat in the city, which is amazing. It is a type one carcinogen and we no longer purchase processed meat in our city and serve it in our schools. And we have a 50% beef reduction uh, in the city purchasing. I'm, I'm hoping that we move to 100% away from purchasing beef in the city. And that's so important because New York has such a large procurement budget for food. Uh, just in our school system alone, we feed 960,000 meals a day. So you can only imagine uh, what that number adds up to at the end of a year period. And we're also looking at a great initiative that we're doing at Bellevue Hospital, one of the first of its kind in New York, if not America, where we're doing lifestyle medicine, where people are having options. Imagine going to the doctor and being told that you can go on a drug regimen where you'll get metformin, where you'll get insulin and others, or you can go into a lifestyle med medicine regimen where you could eventually cycle off of any drugs at all or reverse your conditions as so many have done. Over 700 people have signed up for um, our program. 250 people are in the actual clinic now. And we're looking to expand this in all of our health and hospitals uh, throughout the entire city. One of the largest health and hospital corporations there is. And even the proceeds of the book from my book, Healthy At Last, we want to give it to the faith-based institutions in the city so they can start health ministries. Mm -hmm. So we can show, slowly show people how they can eat better and really deal with some of the chronic diseases that they feel they had no power to deal with at all. We want to show people, yes, you do have the power uh, to really change your life. And the person inside you, all of us have it. 
uh, we all have an individual in us that we know we want to come out and we can show each other how that person can come out, how we can get the balance in our weight, balance in our health, balance in our mental stability. And that's the goal that we're pushing through here in New York City in the borough of Brooklyn. Yeah. How has uh, the, the COVID-19 crisis affected the trajectory? You know, on the one hand, you might think it would make people much more eager to reduce their medic, you know, their obesity and pre-existing conditions. On the other hand, it's incredibly stressful. And we know that when people are stressed out, they tend to resort to comfort foods. What, what, are, you, what are you seeing and what are you doing about it? Our goal is to hope that the city use this as an opportunity. It's unfortunate uh, when the COVID outbreak first hit the city uh, that for the most part, uh, we were serving millions of meals in the city and the meals we were serving actually aggravated uh, the entire crisis. It's, it's no secret uh, that over 90% of the people hospitalized and 90% of the people who died had comorbidities or pre-existing conditions. Uh, those are just fancy terms for asthma, diabetes, heart disease, respiratory issues. And we wanted the city to use the opportunity to wean people into healthy eating since we were serving the foods and delivering the foods. I'm hoping that if there's a reoccurrence that we learn from what we were serving uh, to everyday New Yorkers, particularly in economically challenging areas where you had a large number of comorbidities exist, that we should start giving people and introducing them to healthy foods. We didn't do it uh, in March, April, and May during the peak of the COVID-19, I'm hoping that if we have a reoccurrence, like many doctors are saying, there's a possibility we will, that we would change our direction and fight the battle on two fronts. We must fight COVID-19 with an intervention and a prevention. Right now, we just had an intervention. When someone got sick, we interceded to try to heal them. Now we must move to a prevention model, which is going to, going to prevent people from either getting sick by strengthening their immune system or having a build a strong enough system that you can fight off not only COVID-19, but the flu, flu as well. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've been um, working on this issue, I think, for five or six years now. In the, in the public space. What's the difference that you see and hear in the conversations? So when, pe- when you have an event at City Hall, at Borough Hall, and people come, I'm sure five years ago, they, you know, curious, maybe they're going to get some food, what is going on? Like, what's the difference in the level of sophistication and interest and like any sort of cultural shifts you're seeing as a result of continually beating this drum? I like that. That's a great question, because something happened last year that I thought would never happen, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, one of the oldest civil rights organizations in the country, uh, they put in place a proclamation during their national convention that calls for plant-based eating in our schools, our prisons, in our hospitals. Uh, They are acknowledging the presence. We have uh, communicated with the NAACP uh, for some time now, and now the dialogue is no longer something uh, that is seen as uh, something that's a hippie-type meal, for lack of a better phrase, but it has hit mainstream. Uh, you see conversations 
uh, in our schools, our hospitals, and even here at Borough Hall, as we serve meals here, people know when they come here, they're going to have good tasting food uh, that is healthy in the process, and we engage, and that's the expectation that people are looking for. So clearly, there's an entirely new conversation of this thing called healthy eating, plant-based food is something that people are welcoming, and we're excited about that. When I do my Instagram uh, channels, the highest hits I receive is when I show one of my fast meals that you can do, or different meals like my frozen dessert. People are really excited because people are realizing that food must be good for you, it must look good to you, but darn it, it must taste good. And you don't have to compromise on any of those three areas by going plant-based and living a healthier lifestyle. Those are some of the great recipes that we have in our book, uh, Healthy at Last. We have some amazing recipes in the book that talks about and show people of how they can eat healthy, like my pasta with kale and sausage, or um, the different snacks with black bean and corn uh, salsa. And it's about showing people you can eat healthy with those products that are right in your supermarket. There's nothing special about doing it. Right, right. Yeah, I, I loved the the eclectic um, sourcing that you did for the recipes, in, including for, uh, some from, uh, I think, Brian Terry, Afro-Vegan. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah. different cultural, different cultural uh, uh, meals, because my goal is to show people from different cultures and different groups that you can still do uh, the food types that you're used to, but change the products in it and make it a healthier uh, mixture. You can have a taco. Uh, instead of using white processed flour, uh, use whole wheat flour. And instead of uh, using uh, you know, ground beef, you can use uh, stuff like things that give you the same texture and the same flavor as beef, mushrooms and, and kale and, and other lentils uh, and, and noodles, macaroni and cheese. Uh, I make a great cheese made out of a chickpea flour and nutritional yeast and Ooh. macaronis made out of lentil or pasta that only have water and lentils in the mixture. So you can get the food taste and the, and the texture you're looking for, but you can do it in a healthy way. Wow, and I love the echoes of like the the sourcing of your of sort of communal and ancestral strengths because soul food was all about ingenuity, about staying alive from a garbage heap, and you're saying like you can take the same ingenuity today's world and create culturally appropriate delicious meals, you know, with that you don't have to rely on the food system to provide them for you. Could not have said it better. So true. And that's what the book, I wanted to show people, that creativity and ingenuity that we learned to survive off the scraps uh, that were discarded to find the texture and the taste, uh, that was created out of the need to survive. We're back here again. We have come full circle. Uh, there's a need to survive again. Uh, when you look at 70% of 12-year-olds have early signs of heart disease, which is our number one killer. 30 million Americans are diabetic, 84 million are pre-diabetic. We're spending 80 cents on a dollar on chronic diseases in America. We're, we are at that place again of how do we survive? 
And it's really about having that creativity. And we don't only want to be propped up and say that we're living longer at 100, but we can't identify our grandchildren because Alzheimer's and dementia mm. has settled in, or that we're being wheeled around because we lost a limb and diabetes being the number one uh, cause of non-trauma limb amputation and number one cause of blindness. This is not how we have to live. And so we are fighting for our survival. So that same creativity that shows us how to use the foods um, in Mexico or South America, Central America, or in the Caribbean, or even here in our country in the Southern part in Alabama and Georgia, that, those creative ways is what we need now to find creative ways of enjoying our food and enjoying spices. Uh, I have a new love of spices. I did not realize the power of turmeric, the power <laughs> of cumin, the power of all of these cinnamons and, and garlic and onions. Uh, the spices are just as healing, with healing powers as the food we eat. Yeah. So what, one last question. Imagine that the book you know, has an impact beyond your wildest dreams. Um, the black community, brown communities, really embrace whole food, plant-based eating, start turning their health around. What, what do you see as potential um, you know, concept, positive consequences? Like what's possible when a community gets their health under control? That's a great question. Uh, the real indicator would be on Thanksgiving as we sit around the table and pray for Aunt Betty to heal from a particular chronic disease. Yet, as we give thanks for the meal in front of us, that meal caused that disease. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having Aunt Betty in the hospital healing, Aunt Betty would be sitting around the table with us. And we would start engaging in conversations of next generations not to be enslaved uh, to the food that's causing our chronic diseases. And that children will talk about the meals they learned in the kitchens with their grandma and their grandfathers, and those recipes will start to be handed down of how do we cook uh, healthy kale and he healthy dishes that really, really will strengthen generations. Uh, it is so important uh, for us to use the power of food and make sure that not only is it comforting because we have satisfied our palates, but it's comforting because we have satisfied our nutritional needs. And I think we're at that place now. When you're seeing smart figures who are in the medical professional, who are in the culinary professional, you're seeing a combination of people of different cultures who are coming together and saying, we want to heal and we want to have a healthy life. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. And I'm thinking back to that iconic scene in the book with Aunt Betty's funeral and your mom in the pillbox. That, that's also indicative of all the strengths of community, of family, of generosity. And imagine if that energy gets channeled to healthy food instead of the pills. So true, so true. And we're clear, uh, nowhere in the contract of life is the term uh, mortality. Uh, we won't live forever. Uh, we are mortals, and so we will transition from the physical to the spiritual but it should not be by our hands and it should not be premature and we should not be just existing while we are alive. Life is meant to live. And that's my goal to allow people to live. That's beautiful. And uh, tell us again, the name of the book and when it will be available. The name of the book is healthy at last. It will be available uh, in October. You can pre-order now uh, healthy at last. It is my 
of all of me has been part of this book and it's my way of saying thank you to those who have helped me heal and hope I can do the same for other families. Healthy at last. Awesome. Well, Borough President Adams, thank you so much for all the work you've done for the advocacy, for, for moving this issue forward in so many levels and for taking the time today. Thank you. Always good seeing you again. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Are you inspired? I'm inspired there. You know, political memoir is certainly a genre like everybody who's running for a higher office will have to write their, you know, their story. And it's all about making themselves look good and showing the adversity they've overcome. And it's so refreshing to see a uh, a memoir that that frankly doesn't make him look all that good for a lot of, a long a lot of years. There's a lot of, you know, I made mistakes. I didn't know I was wrong. Which, I, oh my gosh, that humility in our in our current political climate is so refreshing, and for me, so trustworthy. And then to tie this um, his political ambitions to a movement that's for everyone that can benefit all human beings, all life on this planet, as opposed to appealing to a, a narrow interest base or or pie in the sky, um, you know, beautiful, vague promises for everyone. This this is a a platform that can really transform the world. And I'm so happy to be able to be in contact with the borough president and to share this with you again. The book is healthy at last. Uh, go get it. Go write a review about it. Share it widely. Um, this could be a, a, a hopefully a, a tipping point in getting the health plant based message out there into the world. Ah, you can check out the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com slash four three two. And anything you can do to uh, spread the word for the show would be much appreciated. So um, let's see, we got we got garden news, not much going on. We started buying muscadine grapes from other farmers because ours uh, just didn't do it this year. They're, they really are delicious. I wish uh, I could figure out how to get ours to grow. But uh, we are buying locally, supporting local farmers, and they taste almost as good as when we pick them ourselves. Um, running news, went to the Cairo today, uh, got some loud adjustments. And so hopefully I'll be back to jogging. I, I've just been sort of run walking, still still tight. Got to do yoga, got to do something to really get some stretching and um, and paying attention to to bodily sensation in there running just by itself. It's, it's a little bit too repetitive just doing it on the road where I live. Not not enough variety to keep me fully healthy. So I'm going to be exploring other forms of movement. 